Tonight, we're in the Old Testament, and, uh, and we're beginning a new section of the Old Testament together. We finished uh, the law several months ago, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And then after that, you have history. So uh, Joshua all the way through um, uh, Nehemiah, really, uh, which is the last book before Job. And so you get all kind of the history of Israel from the time that they uh, are brought out of slavery in Egypt and enter into the Promised Land uh, there in Joshua. And then all the way through, you know, Ezra and Nehemiah, where we have the people coming back to the land after exile to rebuild the temple and rebuild the wall there. And now we're shifting to a different sort of genre of uh, Old Testament Hebrew literature, and that is wisdom literature. There are five books that uh, of the Old Testament that fall into this wisdom genre. Job is the first followed by Psalms and then Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. And so a lot of the things that we learn to do when reading historical narrative in the Old Testament, that's not going to go out the window, but we need to think differently about how we read wisdom because it's just a different kind of literature. For the same reason that you would read a love letter from your wife or your husband differently than you would read uh, the, the front page news story on, on the, uh, in the Albuquerque Journal, uh, for the same reason we need to read wisdom literature differently with a different understanding. Standing, uh, with some different commitments on the front end than we would historical narrative. So we're going to look at Job together tonight. Hopefully you're able to grab one of those little bifold note sheets, and, uh, and that's just to kind of help give you an overview of where we're going together. If you didn't, you don't necessarily need one right now. You can grab one uh, after the service, or you can go and, and grab one right now if you'd like to kind of follow along that way. But I would invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Job and keep them open, and we'll kind of be skipping around some, and so hold on as best you can, and and we'll follow through. I've subtitled this uh, sermon, this study in Job, Faith and Suffering, because I don't really know what else to title it. Job is a a book that is about suffering, uh, kind of in detail, in the specific. If you've lived for very many years, you, friend, are acquainted with suffering at some level. Suffering seems in many ways to be a given in life. It is universally experienced, albeit in differing degrees, depending on the person and the circumstances of their life, maybe their family upbringing, maybe the the, the place in the world that they live and, and other environmental factors. And in our modern and enlightened age, we have been taught that every effect has a cause. And then if we can discern the cause, we can explain the effect. So if somebody is suffering in life, well, there must be a reason for it. And so if we can determine what the reason for our suffering is, oh, well, then we can figure out the purpose of our suffering and make sense of it that way. Too often, though, this just doesn't work with suffering, with pain, with illness, with financial catastrophe. Friends will try to console us in our suffering by saying things like, you know, everything happens for a reason. Everything's going to be okay. Of course, God is going to bless you when all of this is over. Or worse, uh, friends try to explain why it's your fault that you're suffering. You must have done something bad to deserve this, right? Cause and effect. These explanations don't work, not only because they're thin and uncaring and ignorant, but also because they misunderstand suffering in so many ways. This Old Testament book of Job is a story that is meant to, that is written for the purpose of imparting wisdom for those who suffer and for those who anticipate experiencing suffering. We learn in Job that suffering is a teacher. It exposes myths. It imparts truth. It shapes those who go through it. Charles Dickens, the classic author, once wrote that suffering is stronger than all other teaching. By it we are bent and broken, but with hope 
into a better shape. So tonight in Job, we set ourselves to learn from the suffering of another, to learn from Job's pain, from Job's trial. And we will, as we work through Job, expose some myths about suffering. We'll affirm some truths about suffering. And prayerfully, we will be bent, broken, and reshaped by the wisdom that suffering, with an eye toward God, with an eye of faith, brings. So as we do in, these, uh, uh, in this woven series, we, we deal with some of the particulars of the different books of the Bible to help us get a feel for what we're getting ourselves into. And so explaining some of the context that's behind each of these books, we look always first to the author. Who's the author of this book? Who's the human author of this book? Now with books like uh, the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that's easy. Uh, 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 Hebrew tradition attributes the authorship, the human authorship of those books to Moses, the leader of Israel, and Joshua to Joshua, Judges and so on, Samuel to Samuel, and maybe some others, Chronicles to Ezra, uh, perhaps, uh, include, and, and Ezra and Nehemiah, maybe Ezra wrote those as well. Many of the Psalms have David as their author. The Gospels in the New Testament have the names of their authors attributed to them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Job is hard, and so is most of the rest of wisdom literature because there's no stated author of Job. Now, it's possible we could conclude that Job, the one who went through this trial, was the one who maybe eventually wrote it down, but the text just plainly doesn't tell us. It seems likely that this was a a story with a long oral tradition that was later eventually written down by someone for the sake of those who would be able to read it later. The date of the writing of the books and the events of the book is always important for us, too. It helps us to understand maybe cultural things that are going on in that day and time. It's particularly helpful with a lot of the historical narrative uh, uh, books of the Old Testament. But again, there, Job is difficult, too. The events of Job, there's there's no timeline. There's no, like... as Judges begins, uh, it begins in the days when the judges were judging, or in the day of the judging of the judges is kind of how it starts. So we have a, a historical context spirit there, but we don't get that for Job. In fact, the beginning of, the jo- uh, of Job sounds a little bit like, I don't want to say like a fairy tale, because I'm not saying that th- these are fictitious events, but it kind of starts the same day, like there once was a man, right? There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That's the most historical context that we get for this. So the dates of Job, uh, the date of the events of Job are, are kind of up in the air. There's a big question mark there. We're not really sure about it. Some scholars think that the events of Job may be actually quite ancient, even taking place before Abraham or, or maybe even the days of Abraham. Obviously, the writing down of Job is much later, but a certain date for its authorship, for its being you know, uh, written down with pen on parchment is really difficult to, to pin down. If we were going to summarize Job in just a few short sentences, I would uh, venture a shot at it this way. Job tells a story of the titular character, the, the character in the title. He's a righteous man who experiences great suffering. M- many of you are, are familiar already with the, the flow of Job and what takes place there. And though Job recognizes that God is the ultimate cause of his suffering, he never curses, he never judges God for it. And in all of his seeking for answers to his suffering, Job is afforded a personal confrontation, not a personal consolation, but a personal confrontation from God in which he's reminded of God's sovereignty in all things. I'll put it plainly, I've read through Job a couple of times in the past uh, few weeks to get uh, uh, to prepare for this sermon tonight. And, and the ending of Job is not quite as satisfying as you might would hope, but it's helpful and it's godly and it points us to truth. 
there are a few major themes in Job. I've listed three. You could probably find more, but here, here they are. First of all, one of the major, first major themes in Job is that of God's certain sovereignty. Sovereignty. God is certainly in charge of all things in human life. And we see that he's even sovereign over our suffering in Job. We see also the theme that suffering often does not have a ready explanation. Sometimes people go through hard things without, without any clear reason as to why it's taking place. And, and sometimes without even any clear outcome for, for what, was, what was the purpose in it all. We also see this final theme, and we'll see this as we work through Job tonight, that we can always trust God with our suffering. Because he's sovereign, even though we may not always have an explanation, we can always trust God with our suffering. Now, in this series, we always try to place the different books of the Bible that we're working through in the scope of redemption history, in the scope of God's redeeming work uh, in human history to call sinners back to himself. And redemption history kind of unfolds. We've, we've shown in four sort of major epics. We have first creation, and that's covered by you know, the earliest parts of Genesis when God is creating the heavens and the earth and Adam and Eve in his own image to fill the earth and, and to multiply and to subdue it. Then we have the fall, which is uh, uh, not my favorite season of the year, but the fall uh, from relationship with God that Adam and Eve experience when they eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. From that moment, from the moment of the fall, all the way until the birth of Jesus, we have this looking forward to, this hope for redemption, for rescue from sin and the effects of the fall. And that redemption comes to its, its climax, comes to its fulfillment as Christ dies for sins on the cross and is raised from the dead as God's promised Messiah, as the promised seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And after Christ performs all of his necessary work for redemption, we begin looking forward to, mostly in the latter part of the New Testament, this day of consummation, when Christ will return as king to bring all things, make all things right with himself, to call the church to himself, to give them new life uh, and, and eternal life with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. And where uh, on that day of consummation, he'll send all of those who are apart from him, still in their sin, who have rejected him their whole lives through, uh, uh, sentence them to an eternity and separation from fellowship with God in hell. Now, a lot of uh, the Bible is, is relatively easy, uh, no, or maybe not relatively easy, but easier than Job, to place somewhere within the scope of redemption history. Where does it fit in there? And I'll tell you, I've struggled with Job. Because as wisdom literature, it kind, of, it kind of sits not outside of redemption history, but it kind of, I don't know, flows through all of it. And so normally I would tell you to take your, your pen or pencil or crayon or lipstick or whatever you're writing with tonight and circle on your note sheet, you know, one of those epics or maybe one of those arrows in between those epics, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, as to where this, this particular book would lie. And I don't have a ready answer for you yet tonight, but maybe we'll discuss it a little bit after we conclude. Now, as I said, as you read Job on your own, and it's 42 chapters in length, if you were to sit down and read it in one sitting, you could probably read it through in about an hour and a half, maybe two hours, because most of it is Hebrew poetry. It reads a little bit quicker. But Job falls into this category of biblical literature that we call wisdom literature, along with it, like we said, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And wisdom literature often defies a soundbite synopsis or proof text summary. A lot of times, in order to understand wisdom literature well, Job especially, we have to read the whole thing and consider the end from the beginning in order to understand what it is that God and His Word is teaching us through all of this. 
Uh, wisdom literature, like I said, it defies soundbite synopsis. And sometimes, even in wisdom literature, you'll get, uh, you'll get contrasting bits of wisdom, one right after the other, or, or maybe even they seem contradictory. And you go, what is, what is, what's going on here? And, and what it is, is God showing us the path of wisdom. And so sometimes, like in Proverbs, you get one proverb that says, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest he seem wise in his own eyes. And then right after that, you get another proverb that says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he, you know, fall into foolishness the rest of his life. So which is it? Do you answer a fool according to his folly or not? And wisdom says, yes. So it kind of is with Job. In Job, we have uh, several, several cycles of dialogue between Job and his three friends who try to comfort him. And by the way, they're terrible at it. But in the things that Job's friends say, there are things that they say that are true. But if we were to try to just like cherry pick those verses out of Job from his, from his ignorant friends to, to speak about clear theology, we would be misusing Job because we'll see at the end of it, Job's friends, even though they say true things, they say the right thing the wrong way or at the wrong time, or they say the right thing with some sort of assumption that they know everything. And at the end of the book, they're rebuked for what they say. So even though they say true things, they say it with the wrong heart, with the wrong intention, with, with a, a lack of reverence for God in it or understanding of, of, of godly wisdom as they say it. And so they're rebuked for it. So it's helpful maybe to not try to pull out what Job's friends say and use that to, to shore up our theology with these you know, little sound bites or whatever. Instead, we need to read all of Job and take all of Job in context to understand what is going on here. So as you read wisdom literature like Job, you can ask yourself a few different questions to help shape your understanding of what's going on there. First of all, what is this text telling me about God and his character? That's a question that we can ask of every single book of the Bible and perfectly come away with significant and helpful um, um, realizations there. Second, what does this text teach me about the nature of humanity? Particularly in Job, we're going to learn that suffering is, is almost a given in human existence, and sometimes we don't understand it. Third, how does this text, how does this book of wisdom instruct me to live in light of these truths? That's the point of wisdom. Wisdom literature points us to how we should live in relationship with God, with with reverence for God in these different situations and areas of life. Finally, how does this text call me to trust God? How does it call me to worship Him? That's part of what wisdom literature teaches us to do in several places, and we'll see it even uh, in Job that uh, wisdom literature uh, points us uh, or, or directs us to see that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. To worship Him is the, is the beginning of a, a life lived in godly wisdom. And so we'll see that in Job tonight. We see that in other places as well, that worship of God, fear of God, is the, the path, the first steps on the path to godly wisdom. Now, Job, uh, as the story goes, as the book goes, outlines relatively uh, easy. It's pretty straightforward. There is in chapters 1 and 2 a prologue. It's kind of an introduction to what's going on where we learn about Job's character and the testing, the suffering that he goes through. And then from the, the bulk of Job is chapters 3 through 31, or maybe even 37 if you really want to, where Job has dialogues with his friends. Now, chapters 3 through 31 are Job's dialogues with his, uh, with his three worthless friends, Eliphaz, uh, Zophar, and Bildad. And so the first cycle of their dialogue takes place in chapters 3 through 14, the second cycle in 15 to 21, the third cycle in 22 to 25. 
And then Job has kind of a final summary synopsis of, of kind of his reaction to everything that's gone on in chapters 26 through 31. And then we get another friend, a fourth friend, who was not part of the original cycle. His name is Elihu. And Elihu is younger than the other three friends that tried to console him before and entered into this discourse with him. And Elihu gives a totally different contribution to Job's suffering, a different perspective than Job's other friends had given. And then in chapters 38 through 42, we, we get to the meat of it. We, we have finally the Lord showing up to confront Job uh, in response to all of his suffering. And then at the very end, uh, chapter 42, verses 7 through 17, we have an epilogue. So the, the story is framed with a prologue and, a, and an epilogue. Job pre-suffering, Job post-suffering, where Job is vindicated, uh, where all that he lost was restored and then some, uh, and that's how Job ends. So Job, faith, and suffering, let's look at the word together and let us see what Job is teaching us uh, as it exposes three myths about suffering and also gives us three corresponding truths to combat these myths about suffering uh, as we work through. First of all, myth number one, God won't allow suffering to befall the faithful. Myth number one about suffering is that God won't allow it to come upon those who are faithful to him. As we open the book of Job, we're introduced to the main character, Job, not Job, Job, who is a wealthy and a faithful man. Job, we are told in the beginning of chapter 1, is blameless and upright. Now, this doesn't mean that he's sinless, but it means that he does not hide his sin or fail to confess and repent of it to God. Moreover, Job is blessed with a full number of children. You'll notice that he has 10 in total, which is a number of completion. He has seven sons, which is a number of perfection. He has three daughters, which is another sort of biblically significant number for completion. And so he reveres God uh, in such a way that he even makes sacrifices on behalf of his children in the event that they have somehow sinned without Job knowing so that God will forgive them and uh, and not punish them in his judgment. Job is a man who is blessed beyond measure and faithful to the Lord. He has lands and cattle and livestock in abundance. On one occasion, we're told, at the beginning of Job, that God calls a council meeting of sorts of all of the spiritual beings or sons of God, angelic beings, to gather together. And there we read the cause of Job's eventual suffering. Look with me at Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 12. There we read, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. There's a personal name of God, Yahweh, all caps, L-O-R-D. And Satan, or the accuser, also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and an upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And Satan answered the Lord, and he said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But I dare you, now I'm inserting that, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. So Satan, in this conversation with the Lord, the Lord says to Satan, have you seen my servant Job? Isn't he awesome? Satan says, yeah, of course he loves you. You've given him all this stuff. Take it away and then let's see what happens. And so the Lord said to Satan, verse 12, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. 
And what follows this meeting is a tragedy. All at once, Job loses his wealth and his children. Fire from heaven consumes his livestock. The Chaldeans, a a neighboring enemy people, come in and raid his land, killing his children and all but one servant who is able to return to Job to tell him what happened. And it gets even worse later. Because in all of this, Job uh, does not curse God, but rather he blesses him. Job 1, 21 and 22 says, uh, Job said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So here's where it gets worse. Satan comes back to God in chapter 2 and he says, Listen, God, you've still been too kind to Job. Yeah, you've allowed me to kill all his children and take away all of his livestock, but you've still been too nice. If you take away his health now, he will curse you. So God says, go ahead, spare only his life. And so God allows Satan to attack Job's health, to plague him with sores from head to foot. And in response to this, Job's wife, who's a lovely, encouraging woman, comes and says to Job in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, do you still hold, your, hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die lovely woman. But Job said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive also evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now already by now you see the myth playing out, that the myth that God won't allow suffering to befall the faithful. Job is a righteous and a faithful man. He's blessed by God. And all of a sudden, almost on a whim, he is the subject of immense suffering, losing everything. God won't give you more than you can handle, our hearts often want to say. But what about Job? What about Job? Would those be words of comfort in the ears of this man? Surely God wouldn't let evil befall a righteous person, would he? Well, what might Job have to say with that, say to that? The myth often told of suffering is that God does not send it upon those who don't somehow deserve it. And certainly God will protect those who are good, won't he? Well, when we come to the opening book of Job, we're confronted with a direct challenge to this myth that God sometimes does allow suffering to befall the faithful. Now, the consummate truth that this wisdom book points us to, the the, the corrective truth to this myth is this, that God is sovereign even over suffering. He's in charge of even suffering. Already Job lets us in on this truth. In chapter 1, verse 12, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In chapter 2, verse 10, essentially the same thing. After round 2 of suffering, shall we receive good from God and not evil, not distress, not misery also? And this affirmation of God's sovereignty continues throughout the whole book of Job. In chapter 6, in chapter 12, in chapter 16, and 23, and, and 30, all over the place, we get these affirmations from Job's own mouth about God's sovereignty over suffering. This much is clear from the first chapters of Job, that though Satan has laid his hand on Job, who was it that permitted him to do it? It was God. God said, go ahead, afflict him, take everything away. Let's try this out. Let's test your theory, Satan. He even invites Satan to try to take or or, or break Job. Catch this, though. Job is totally in the dark as to this conversation between God and Satan. Job is not there in the heavenly council watching the Lord and Satan uh, discuss the faithfulness of Job and, and why he maintains his faithfulness. All along the way, though, Job being totally ignorant as to what's really going on in the heavenly realm attributes his suffering to who? To the Lord. 
time and again. And Job is never corrected for it. God never appears to Job to say, hey, buddy, listen, you know what? I love you. I care for you. And I wouldn't let anything bad ever happen to you. But here's the thing. Satan's a real jerk, you got to understand. And I just couldn't stop any of this from happening. I kind of owed him one and I had to let him do this. That, That never happens. Job attributes all of his suffering to the sovereignty of God. And you know what? Job's opinion is never corrected. His assertion that God is sovereign over his suffering is never rebuked by God or by anyone else. Instead, in the middle of his suffering, Job says in Job 23:13-14, "The Lord is unchangeable, and who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does, for he will complete what he appoints for me." Talking about his suffering, he will complete the suffering he has appointed for me, and many such things are in his mind. My friend, you may not find this to be a comfort that God is sovereign over our suffering, but Job does. The very reality that nothing is outside of the hands of God, even our deepest, darkest, worst, most painful suffering, should incline us to think differently about pain and sorrow. The wisdom of Job teaches us that even human suffering is in the hands of God, and we are taught that time and again in this book. We may not know why, We may not know for what reason immediately why we are experiencing suffering, what the purpose of it is. But Job calls us to ask ourselves a rhetorical question, who is there more trustworthy to handle our suffering than this God? So dear ones, in your suffering, find wisdom to avoid the blasphemy of saying, God is not in control of my suffering. This is out of his hands. No, 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 no. The wisdom of Job says, all of this is in God's hands. And he will complete whatever he has appointed for me. Myth number one, God will never allow suffering to befall the faithful. The truth that combats that myth is that sometimes God does allow suffering, or or, excuse me, God is sovereign over even our suffering. But myth number two, and this comes to us in the bulk of uh, the, the narrative of Job, myth number two about suffering is this, that suffering is always the effect of wickedness, cause and effect. Wickedness is always the cause of suffering. Suffering comes because there's wickedness or sin in your life. In chapter two, we're told that Job's friends, whose names are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they come to comfort him. Chapter two, verses 12 and 13 say this, When they saw him, when they saw Job from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. This is a a picture of, of, of mourning with their friend. Verse 13, And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Let's just stop for a moment and and recognize that Job's friends started really, really well. They showed up. They saw Job's pain. They shut their mouths and they wept with him. And for a week they sat in silence because they knew that there were no words that can console this grief. Job's friends start well. But in relatively short order, their ignorance takes over again. And in the foolishness of their own minds, they set about to try to fix Job's problem. Well, Job, here's why all this suffering is really going on. Listen to us. The bulk of this book is this dialogue over and again between Job and his worthless friends. And I call them worthless because Job calls them worthless. Because as well as they had started in helping their friend to grieve, they fail the test of wisdom by speaking what they do not know and affirming the myth that suffering is always the effect of wickedness. 
We can actually summarize the whole of these central chapters this way. There's three cycles of discourse where Job's friends will say something to him and he'll respond to each in order. So cycle number one, Job's friends say, Job, if you're suffering, God must be punishing you. We know that God only judges the wicked, so you are in sin suffering on the wicked, so if you're suffering, you must be wicked. Job responds, friends, if only that were true, then I could repent. If there were sins that I knew of that I were holding back, that I were hiding, I would repent of them and the suffering would be over. But there's nothing that I can think of. Come around to cycle number two, and the advice or the, 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 the direction of the friends gets a little bit more severe. They say to him, this time, Job, you must be hiding something from us. Surely you have sinned. Surely you can't be as righteous as you seem to be or, or seem to think that you are. And Job says, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm not hiding any sin. I've been honest. I've been clear. I, I, I've been forthright about all of this. There's nothing hidden within me. So we get to cycle three, and in cycle three, it's interesting. Zophar, the third friend, has nothing to say. Bildad, the second friend, has only like a paragraph in chapter 25. But at this point, they respond to him, Job, you know that no one is righteous, not even you. So stop lying to us and stop lying to God. Admit your wickedness in the face of your suffering. They get really harsh with him toward the end. Job responds to them the third time. You still don't know what you're saying. Often the wicked go unpunished. Haven't you seen it happen? I've spoken truthfully these three times. There's nothing evil hidden in me. You see, Job's friends have a conveniently oversimplified orthodoxy. They believe that good people are blessed and wicked people are punished. That's about the sum total of their theology. And and certainly there are affirmations of this in Scripture. Those who are faithful to the Lord will experience blessing from the Lord. Those who sin against Him and and walk in wickedness will will receive certain kinds of curses or, or the handing over of God to the effects of their sin. Yes, but what Job's friends fail to understand is that life and even life in relationship with God is more complex than that. Sometimes God-fearing people suffer, and sometimes wicked people go unpunished. The myth is that suffering is always the effect of wickedness, and Job's friends, in endorsing this wrong-headed theology, are not better than those that believe in karma today. If you do good things, you'll get good things. If you do bad things, you'll get bad things. If you're in the middle of a bad time of life, try to do some more good stuff so things will turn around. Job's friends are not a whole lot better than that. Good conduct gets blessing. Bad conduct gets suffering. Job, don't you know this? Change your actions. Job says, I I don't know what I'm not doing. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. I don't know what I'm not doing. The myth is that suffering is always the effect of wickedness. But the truth of Job, uh, the truth of his life, the truth of this book that combats that myth is this, that suffering often is not easily explained. Suffering is always the effect of wickedness. That's the myth of the world, the myth that Job's friends buy into. But the truth of Job, the truth that Job reveals is that suffering often doesn't come with a pat explanation. It often can't be be explained easily or explained away. Sometimes we get answers and explanations for why cancer strikes our bodies, but often not. Sometimes we can make connections between financial hardship and and, uh, past poor decisions. But other times the stock market just crashes apart apart from our help. If we're to gain wisdom in suffering, that's the purpose of Job, to give us wisdom in suffering, we must come to understand that godly wisdom is the divine goal for our suffering. 
and not simplistic explanations. What God wants to show us and what God is showing Job in the midst of his suffering, what he's leading him to is godly wisdom. In chapter 28, Job goes searching for wisdom like a miner goes searching for precious gems and metals. He talks about wisdom being hidden in the the, the depths of the earth in places where animals cannot find and, and even where death resides, like almost as to say the only way we'll ever know or have true wisdom is, is when we die. He says that wisdom is in a place that only God can find and only God knows. And so in Job chapter 28, verses 20 through 28, he says this, From where then does wisdom come? And where's the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, We have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and he sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it. He saw wisdom and he declared it. He established it and he searched it out. And he said to man, remember the question is, where is wisdom? The Lord said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. And Job's suffering doesn't get explained by his three friends. In fact, they do a rather terrible job of it. And by the end of their cycles of discourse, Job rebukes them for their callousness. He calls them worthless physicians in chapter 13 who try to comfort him with empty nothings in chapter 21. And you know what? Job's right. Job's right. There's not always an easy earthly explanation for our suffering. In fact, the truth of suffering is that most of the time there isn't one at all. second myth of suffering that we often uh, try to, 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 uh, to use to explain our suffering or whatever is that suffering is always the cause or the effect of, of wickedness. There's something wrong, something bad in your life. Surely, surely the unjust don't suffer. But the truth that the book of Job combats that myth with is that Oftentimes, suffering doesn't have an easy explanation. And the purpose of it is to gain wisdom. And wisdom is found in the fear of the Lord. There's no, expl- there's no explanation for why that suffering happens, but it's meant to lead us to fear the Lord. There's a third myth that comes about as we read through Job and a corresponding truth that combats it. And the third myth is this, that God owes us an explanation for suffering. If he's sovereign over it, he owes us an explanation, doesn't he? Aren't we worth that? Don't we deserve that? This myth is often found in the expectation that we have of of finally having all of our pain made sense of. God wouldn't do all this to Job without a reason, would he? And surely if there was a reason, he would tell Job. Doesn't he owe Job that? He put Job through all this. He's the one that allowed Satan to, to take all of this away from Job. God is the one who who is attributed uh, as the reason for all of Job's suffering. Doesn't he owe Job an explanation? Even Job, the righteous man that he is, cries out to God for an explanation in his suffering. In chapter 23, verses 2 through 7, he says, Today my complaint is bitter, my hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, speaking of God, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. 
There an upright man could argue with him, and I could be acquitted forever by my judge. If only I could appear before the Lord, I would get an explanation from him, Job says. In fact, we find throughout the remainder of Job, what we find is that God doesn't owe man anything. Job seems to say, God, if I could appear before you, I I would get the explanation that I deserve. But the remainder of, of Job seems to tell us, friends, God doesn't owe you a thing. In chapters 32 through 37, we're introduced to that young man, Elihu. His name means he is God. He appears to rebuke Job's friends and to challenge Job. He's a younger guy than the other three friends, and and he, he begs their pardon for speaking as a younger man to older men. But he rebukes their friends and saying essentially to his friends, you guys don't understand how righteous Job really is. But he also rebukes Job. To say, Job, you may not be as righteous as you think you are. For time, we cannot look at everything that Elihu says, though I encourage you to do it. But we can summarize his words to Job this way. Job, guilty or innocent, you come empty-handed to God. He needs nothing from you, and he doesn't owe you anything. Do you not see that all that was taken from you was first a gift from God? How then will anyone answer the Almighty? Who can stand before him in all his wisdom and his sovereignty? If we had any doubt about whether God owed anyone an explanation, we need only look to the final chapters of Job where God himself shows up and confronts Job directly. Now, earlier I said at the end of the book, we have God confronting Job, not God consoling Job. We might at the end of the story expect God to to show up, right, and say, okay, bud, Job, I know it's been hard. Let's sit down and and talk about all that's been going on, and I'm going to clear everything up for you. I'm going to make it all better. Just hang with me here. No, God doesn't give Job even that. Listen to how the Lord addresses Job, beginning in Job 38, verses 1 through 7. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Hey, fella, I love you so much. Come sit close to me. No. God says to Job, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Who is this that says stuff and has no idea what they're saying? He's saying this to Job. Dress for action like a man. Some of your translations may say, gird your loins. I will ask, I will question you, and you make it known to me. God says, let's have an interrogation. I'm going to ask you some questions, Job. You tell me the answer, and we'll see if we can't figure out this suffering thing, okay? And then he starts in. Verse 4 of Job 38, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know, Job. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Job, where were you on that day when I said, let there be light and there was light? It's a rhetorical question. Job's answer should be, and he's smart enough not to say it out loud, I wasn't. I wasn't. This is the content of God's multi-chapter speech to Job as, as the story of Job's life concludes. In summary, God says essentially this over several chapters, Job, you have no power over the created world. You are small and you are finite. You were not there to witness my creation. Job, you don't have wisdom to answer or knowledge to answer why the beasts of the field do what they do. 
all creation is far bigger than you will ever comprehend. And these are the simple things, Job. Do you then presume to be able to understand any purpose of mine for causing suffering to befall you? That's effectively what what God gives to Job. Who are you? And who do you think you are to ask me such a question like that? That seems harsh. It seems harsh, but God is right, isn't he? Job is small and finite, and he cannot comprehend these things. Friends, we are small and finite, and we cannot comprehend these things. It is bordering on foolish, then, on Job's part, to demand an explanation of God. And you know what? God never gives Job one. Because it's a myth to believe that God owes an explanation for the suffering that we go through. But there's, but there's a truth on the flip side of that, that that should encourage us. Yes, it's a myth that God owes people an explanation for suffering. But the truth that we receive in Job is this, that explanation or no, whether or not we get an explanation for our suffering, God can always be trusted. God can always be trusted, even in the midst of our deepest, darkest sorrow and pain. Listen to Job's faith in the Lord throughout the course of the book of Job. Now, there are several other places we could go, but I'll, I'll just give you four. Job 13, 15. Job says of the Lord, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Even if God kills me, I'm going to hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. Job 16, 19. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven. Who's that but the Lord? And he who testifies for me is on high. Job says, I have a defender in heaven, and the defend, my defender is the same one who's caused me suffering. Job 19, 25 to 27. Job says, I know that my redeemer, my rescuer, the one that will, that will make, that will bring hope out of all of this. I know that my redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. Job 42, two through six. Again, Job says, I know that you can do all things. This is Job's response to God when, when, when God says, gird your loins for action. I'll question you, you tell me. His response to God is, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel with knowledge? <laughs> Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. I spoke too soon, Job says, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you. Here he's quoting what God said to him. And you make it known to me. Yeah, God, you said that. Now I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Job experiences by all accounts the most extreme and severe suffering ever recorded by any human being in human history. And even when his friends, and even when he himself is tempted to demand an explanation for God... And God doesn't give him one. Still, even through all of this terrible suffering, he never turns his back on the Lord. Job never sins in anything that he does. The the book of Job is certain to, to affirm that for us over and again by the end. In all of it, whether or not Job gets an explanation for his suffering. And by the end of the book, we see that he does not. We know that God can always be trusted. And that Job believes this. And that Job has lived by this. What Job demonstrates the whole way through, even through tears and with many questions, is that God can be depended upon always to do what is right, even when it feels like everything's falling apart. If he blesses us with a life of ease, 
we cannot take credit for it. If he afflicts us with suffering, he cannot be condemned. His ways are inscrutable and yet perfect. God is utterly trustworthy in all things. Now, Job ends with a kind of a happy ending, and we, we feel good about that, I think. Helps to bring some resolution to this life of suffering. At the end of Job, God returns to him all of his fortune and then some, which was previously taken. He has 10 more children. Again, that perfect number. Seven sons, three beautiful daughters. More is said about his daughters than his sons. As a girl dad, I can uh, amen that. He lives a life twice the age of a normal lifespan. He lives 140 years. And what did Job learn? What was the wisdom that was gained in all of his suffering? This is a wisdom book. It's supposed to teach us. Job learned that God is God and that he is not. He learned that God's power and God's wisdom are far beyond what we can ever comprehend. So we can trust him. We can worship him. We can gain wisdom in this way and we can live. The lesson that Job teaches us is that God's ways are different than ours. His ways are inscrutable. As he says in Isaiah, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Job affirms this, and even in his suffering, he never condemns God for it. He simply says, man, God, in all of my questioning, I spoke too soon. I had heard about you, but now I've seen you, and so I repent, and I trust you. That's the lesson of Job. Suffering leads us to wisdom, wisdom which is found in fear of the Lord and worship of his name trusting him in the midst of everything, including our deepest suffering, whether or not we have an explanation. But where do we see Jesus in Job? Paul says that all the promises of God had their yes and amen in Jesus. Jesus says in Luke chapter 24 to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus that all of the scriptures are speaking about him. So where do we see Job, this book of Job, this, this story of suffering pointing us to Christ? Well, first of all, we see that Jesus is the living redeemer who pleads our case before God. In Job 19.25, Job declared his faith that he had a redeemer. I know that my redeemer lives, that he had a rescuer who would buy back his suffering and turn it to good. And it seems that Job understands that his rescuer is the same as his judge. The one who will redeem him is the same one who is over his suffering. That God who stands in authority over his life is the same one who will redeem his life. Now, Job, we know, does not appear to have uh, been aware in any way by what he says uh, or what we read in Job of this messianic hope of, of the Christ, of, of Jesus who is coming. And yet that hope is there, isn't it? This hope that the very one who judges our every thought and intention and every sin of our hearts, that that one is the same one who buys us back from our sin. I know that my Redeemer lives. I will see him face to face. In Romans chapter 3, verses 22 through 26, Paul says this about Christ, or about God, who is both uh, that he who is our, our judge and our redeemer at the same time. He says, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
so that God could be both the just judge of sin and the gracious Redeemer who rescues us from it. I know that my Redeemer lives, and He is the same one who is sovereign even over my suffering. Second, we see a a pointing, we see a a signpost to Christ in Job in this way, that Christ gives purpose to our suffering when we are in Him. When we are in Christ, when we are united to Christ by faith, we can find purpose and meaning in our suffering, even if we don't have an explanation for it. Paul says this in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. He says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered. And we know all that Paul had been through. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Everything I had that everyone thought was awesome is garbage to me in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And that I might share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says from a Christian perspective, as we suffer, united to Christ by faith in him, we experience in some way some of the suffering that that Christ endured prior to dying for our sins and in dying for our sins. Not that our suffering leads to our salvation, it doesn't. Only Christ's suffering can do that, but we suffer in Christ, by faith in Christ, in a way that leads us to sanctification, to be conformed to the image of Christ. So Peter says uh, uh, about suffering in 1 Peter chapter 1 that, that we bear these momentary afflictions, these difficulties, these sufferings today for the sake of being made, for our faith to be made pure, like pure gold, to be shown for the value that it has. Suffering has this crucible-like effect on our lives. It's making us into what God has intended us to be in Christ. So when we su- suffer, even as Christians... Knowing that God is sovereign over our suffering, we can find, even though we may not have an explanation for it, we know that there's a purpose, that we would be sanctified, that we would be purified, that we would be disciplined in thought and action and desire, that we would be more conformed to the image of Christ day by day. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 12 verse 11 says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. And some suffering we experience is a discipline from the Lord. And not discipline in the sense of punishment, but discipline in the sense that it's good to get up early in the morning, make your bed, you know, read your Bible, and take care of your kids, and brush your teeth, right? These disciplines that bring life to our, that, that sustain our lives in the same way God disciplines us, and it seems painful. We don't like to get up early. We don't like to make our bed. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Not all suffering is punishment from God. Sometimes it's his discipline to get you in shape, specifically the shape of Christ, as you learn to lean on him and to trust his sovereignty in all that we go through. Suffering, we learn, is, as Charles Dickens said, a teacher. Suffering is a severe teacher, yes, harsher than all others. By it, God bends and breaks us, but we pray he bends and breaks us into a better shape. By holding fast to our living Redeemer, our suffering is the loving God's molding of our hearts to Christ's. That's just some of the wisdom, I think, that comes from Job. 
several myths about suffering, several truths that combat them. In the end, what we learn is that the beginning of knowledge is to fear the Lord and to worship Him always.